dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Welcome to Pass the Mic. I'm your producer, Bo York. And with me, ladies and gentlemen, we've got him all the way from somewhere. I don't even know. <laughs> he's, he's all over all the time, but I think he's home. I'm Jamar home. Tisby? Yes. Okay. That's right. <laughs> I got to throw in a, a greetings and God bless in, uh, in, in Tyler's absence. So we can't go a week without hearing that. No, we're pouring some out for him. Do, you, do, do we know where he is? I think the man is just caught up. You know, he got like 50, 11 jobs. Um, he's also kind of two-timing us on the podcasting deal. Mm. Yeah, so mm. he's, he's hosts of, of another podcast and, and probably got more in the works. But look, we're going to spread the wealth. I mean, he went up to New York. That's like Podcast <laughs> Central. He's got 30 gazillion podcasts in his head. I mean, like, you know. He's getting all cosmopolitan. We uh, we miss you, Tyler. And uh, so I'm, I am a poor substitute, but uh, I am here. Uh, and excited to uh, to talk to you, Jamar, because uh, you you have been on the road. I mean, you're you're always on the road, it seems. But uh, you most recently uh, are back home from TGC. Let me tell you, even being back home in and of itself is a sign of God's grace, because I had the worst air travel experience of my entire life. Oh, what happened? Well, I, I think a lot of people who were traveling. Uh, the week of TGC experiences. I mean, almost everyone was affected. There were all these storms going around the country. And so I got a 7 a.m. flight from Indianapolis, which meant I had to be up at O-Dark 30, of course. And uh, everything was going fine, got on the plane fine, and things didn't start getting complicated till we got to Atlanta. And uh, there were storms there, so we circled the airport for like an hour. Then uh, they shut the airport down. They weren't allowing any flights in. Oh. So then we got rerouted to Charlotte. So that's where we landed. We sit on the tarmac for three hours. Man. After we land. And and at that point, the FAA says, you've got to deplane. So so then we t- went up to, taxied up to the gate, got off the plane after sitting for three hours and flying for two and a half. And then the plane had... had uh, the takeoff time, nobody knew what time it was, and they kept pushing it back and pushing it back. And here's the part that really got me. I was sitting in the airport, and they kept moving the gate where we were supposed to get on and changing the time. Somewhere in that, I missed our flight. Uh, how, how on earth? <laughs> I, I'm telling That's you. That's terrible. Because it was terrible. I was looking at the app. I was looking at the screens. I was trying to talk to people. And it was just so confusing because every other flight has been rerouted and rescheduled and everything like that. And I end up standing in line for literally three hours trying to talk to a gate agent to, to figure it out. Basically, long story short, no more flights out <laughs> that evening. Got to get a hotel on my own dime. And then uh, catch another flight at 7 a.m. the next day. And so in the meantime, I've missed a class. Um, I've missed coming home. I've got assignments to do uh, for my seminars. And then and then I finally get on the plane. Of course, my flight, my first flight is to, oh, so so it goes from Charlotte to LaGuardia. <laughs> I'm trying to get down oh, to wow. Memphis. Oh, wow. They yeah. Go up to New York. And. My first flight is delayed by half an hour. My second flight, thankfully, is delayed because if it hadn't been, I would have missed my connecting flight. And so I finally get down, have to go straight to class, lead discussion, and then crawl my way back home after an hour and a half commute. <laughs> so that was torture, man. It was terrible. But it- see, this is what y'all don't know either, because like Jamar, I mean, you've you've heard him on the podcast. He's a very patient person. 
<laughs> but when it comes to traveling, I've been with Jamar in the midst of travel woes, and that's when you know. The- <laughs> That's what it all I was out. so patient. I mean, you can imagine the airport, like people uh-huh. cussing out these gate agents. I felt so bad for them. So I was very tame compared to them. <laughs> Man, that, that is awful. I will say the the uh, first and only time that I've been to TGC, my, my flight in, we ended up on the exact same flight and actually sitting next to each other, completely <laughs> unintentional. You remember that? I do now that you say it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, so that was a great, my, my only flight, uh, uh, travel around TGC was, was, was excellent. So I'm sorry that, uh, this year was, was rough for you, man. Well, you know, uh, I got some good reading in, I guess, and it was a good lesson in patience. Um, God redeems everything, right? Hey, there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, speaking of God redeeming everything, TGC, man. So, you uh, you were there in a big way this year. I guess um, <laughs> we've gone so pretty faithfully to it's it's a biannual deal. So every other year, and we've gone pretty faithfully. I think this is at least the third time I oh, wow. or someone from Ran has been there, and we're we're grateful to TGC. They um they gave us space in two thousand. I want to say eleven, and uh, to to do a a. It was like a breakfast meeting, and at conferences, nobody gets up early, or if you do, it's like for real business that you're trying to conduct. Well, we did a deal at like 8 a.m. or something, which was ridiculously early. It was last minute, but they gave us space and and all that, and we were expecting – this was like when Rand was first, first, first getting started. Nobody knew what we were, all that stuff, and we were expecting like 30, 35 people, 80 people showed up. Uh, John Piper was there, Shylin was there, a few other folks who who shouted us out and really got us started. So we're indebted in a lot of ways historically yeah. uh, to TGC, and they're still friends of, of RAN. I'm very grateful for folks like Colin Hansen, um, uh, Matt Smethurst, and many others there who, who have supported RAN and, and passed the mic all the way through. Yeah, Colin, of course, uh, we had him on an episode uh, several months back at this point, but continues to be one of our top downloaded episodes. Oh yeah, he's incredibly insightful. Um, he wrote a book called Young, Restless, and Reformed that I think mm-hmm. really hit the pulse of, of of whatever this kind of resurgence is. And uh, you know, the hits keep coming. He's he's working on projects now that I'm really excited about. So, so yeah, there's a there's a special place uh, for TGC and Ran. Um, but yeah, it's it, it was an exciting year. Um, I think the timing this year was. Uh, interesting given all of the recent as of this recording um kind of internet drama and controversy it's one of these things where you're never quite sure who's heard a particular episode or what they thought about it so you know even even the sort of random innocuous you know meetings that you have with people you, you're kind of wary if if it's if it's a particular time like it was this year but everybody was friendly a couple people asked you know hey how, how are you holding up type of thing sympathy support so I was I was grateful for that I'm curious as to what the impact may or may not have been because of some of the controversy I'm, I'm you know I mentioned last week I was in Austin for South by Southwest and you know, one of the big themes of this year's South by Southwest was a lot of, you know, technology under Trump, but then also how do we dismantle, you know, quote unquote, bro 
uh, culture in uh, in, in Silicon culture. Valley. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so like the idea of kind of all these these companies that have become frat houses and. It's interesting because a lot of this, uh, these these kind of themes, only just recently became the themes of South by Southwest prior to um, you know prior to the show, uh, because of you know obviously with with the Trump administration coming in, but also because of you know the Uber debacle uh, for those that that followed that at, at all. What was that? And, uh, I mean, I think Uber, I know, but oh, uh, so so Uber had kind of this uh, this pretty pretty bad week, couple of weeks of PR. Um, one was this uh, blog post that went viral of a former employee and how she kind of uh, constantly experienced a lot of uh, sexism inside the uh, inside the company. And then also, you know, she would constantly report it to HR and nothing would get done. And it was really, it just, this, this post went absolutely viral. And it was, I mean, it was compelling. You just sit there and you read it. And to get me to sit down and actually read a blog post, it in and of itself is a huge feat. Um, <laughs> But it's just this this like heartbreaking story, but then also just kind of the exposure of how these companies come together of all of these kind of, you know, again, kind of frat type of uh, of founders yeah. that are kind of funded by frat type of investors uh, and they go on to create a frat type of company. And, and you know, the, the problems permeate throughout uh, from that moment on and, and throughout. So anyway, point being that because of the controversy that Uber experienced, oh, and there was a, a YouTube video that that exact same week, or at least the one after, went viral of the, the CEO and founder uh, of Uber uh, yelling at one of his employees uh, inside the car. And, and it was just, you know, anyway, it's, it's pretty bad. But mm. that controversy kind of sparked this, like you know, this call to action within the tech community, or at least some within the tech community, let's say, and that ended up very heavily influencing, you know, South by Southwest and a lot of these panels and that sort of thing. So I'm always kind of curious as to, you know, when there is something of kind of a national conversation that is going on it at the time or, or in around the time of kind of a, a large conference, mm. is there any impact? Is is does that impact the conversations that go on? at said conference. Mm. And so from that standpoint, just kind of curious if, if there was uh, any conversations you had uh, at TGC this year that you may not have on another couple of weeks, <laughs> you know, like even a month ago. I most definitely did. Obviously, they weren't, you know, workshop sessions or, or, or publicized, but, but I had a couple of conversations um, around gender around justice and obviously race as well and they were they were pointed they were they were um you know in light of of recent events but really they were touching on kind of perennial themes i think what was different though is it was it was more urgent and and honestly i felt that with with the topic of race and justice in the past several years, um, particularly after Ferguson, right? Th those conversations mm -hmm. about race and justice have been more widespread among white evangelicals. Um, whether the needle's actually moving in terms of actions and attitudes, that's certainly up for debate. But I think in terms of the volume of conversation, that has increased. And then just in the last few weeks, the the conversation about um really women in 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 the church not debating ordination or anything like that but but honestly trying to listen to their experiences and for me as well as I know a few other men um being more deliberate 
about amplifying the voices of women. And, and sort of to that end, I thought about this today. Elodie Quitant is our executive editor. Hey, Elodie. Yeah. So so she is super, super, super behind the scenes because she's so humble, so full of of grace, grace, graceful, gracious. Uh, she doesn't seek the spotlight at all, but she is immensely talented and She's so awesome. dedicated. Awesome is, is a great word. Um, and so I want to shout her out because she does not get the sort of um, attention and, and um, pats on the back and just thanks that she deserves. Uh, because really, she does pretty much everything when it comes to the website. She receives... Mm-hmm. Um, pitches from people by the way right for ran you can email us ideas or full blog posts at submit at rannetwork.org we're always looking for new blog posts and most of our stuff comes from listeners like you just uh, guest posts we have very few regular contributors so we're always looking for new writers and new angles so email submit at rannetwork.org that goes to Elodie and she communicates with the writers she helps edit she um you know asks for input on on theology or cultural tips she she pitches ideas to particular writers uh she maintains the website i mean she does so 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 much and uh, she's a black woman and dealing with all of that in the church so i just want to shout her out and say thank you thank you thank you for all that you do for ran and this ministry two hands That's my woo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, those conversations happen. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, bad. All right, so so you were there. You did a presentation, and then you were also on a panel. Yeah. So t- talk first about the the presentation. Okay, the presentation was called a Reformation in Education. You like that? Um, ah. <laughs> and and the <laughs> subtitle is How Should Christians Engage Public Schools? Um, and this is a very personal topic for me. In the introduction, I said that. So this was a little weird in terms of a presentation because most of the most of my presentations are around um, race and the church, which is which is much more my wheelhouse because not only personal experience, but but reading and formal kind of academic training in this. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, I come at it from from that perspective. Education is near and dear to my heart, but I approach it mainly as a practitioner. Um, I'm I'm not really coming at it from a policy angle or a philosophical angle. I'm coming at it from somebody who spent ten years in public education, particularly public charter schools, as a teacher, as a principal, as a board member, um, you know, married to a teacher, the son of a teacher, all of these things, right? And so it it, it it's very personal to me, and it's about kids. And so mm-hmm. I was basically trying to. Uh, convey the issue in in the sense that whether you agree philosophically with public education, because there's a lot of opposition from certain strands of Christianity, you know, they'll call it Caesar school, government schools. Some people think all Christians t- should take their kids out of public schools. Um, and so there's that ideological difference. And I was like, whatever your ideology around it, the real reality is public education uh, serves 50 million students hmm. uh, and and that I mean that's that's our future there and that is a yeah. massive population and for the first time in the history of public edge a slight majority 51 percent of all public ed students are 
uh, considered high poverty. And hmm. so those are both inner city and rural, right? It's not, hmm. it's not just inner city. But, um, and a lot of times the kids in the most under-resourced schools are black and brown kids, my, racial and ethnic minorities. And so from a, from a justice perspective, if we're going to care about the poor and if we're going to care about racial reconciliation, schools are a place to be for believers. And that was basically my main point. Now, with with that presentation, was there Q&A afterwards, or was it mostly just kind of a walking through keynote style? Yeah, we did Q&A afterwards. <laughs> and uh, well, how was the response? You know what? You know, <laughs> I, I, I came, you know, ready for disagreement, uh, but I was pleasantly surprised. Um, number one, these kinds of things are sort of self-selecting. Uh, the people who sign up for sure. this workshop... Yeah, yeah. They're, they're they're curious and and they're pretty on so lots of educators in there lots of folks who already are volunteering or involved somehow with public ed and so it was a friendly crowd in that sense but i i thought this was i didn't expect this but i'm glad it happened so i actually screenshotted some of the objections that i received on facebook and twitter and and i screenshotted the the responses everything from all christians should take their kids out of public schools to um you know public schools are completely godless they're not contributing anything to society to government shouldn't be involved in in education at all all of those responses i i i i showed pictures of them black you know put a put a bar over the names and all that stuff, but showed mm -hmm. the comments and people, I mean, there was like this, this almost audible intake of, oh, you know, I can't, people actually say that type of thing. <laughs> and I think that helped because if there was anybody in the audience who would have made that kind of comment, they were like, Oh, uh, I'm outnumbered <laughs> in this crowd. So let me not say that. Um, or at least be more polite in my or presence. Or at least be more polite. Uh, <laughs> response, yeah. So I might kind of have to do that with some more presentations to sort of diffuse um, some of the potential uh, conflict. But no, the questions were were all very good natured. It was it was obviously a lot of how do we do this, what do we do about that kind of a thing. But I was really um, energized by the passion in the room. I mean, folks mm. were saying amen throughout it. Uh, you know, there is a strong connection with people who see a need to, for Christians as a matter of justice, to intervene somehow in public education. And so, um, basic structure, I did a little bit of the history of public ed. I even talked about John Calvin in public ed, which is sort of interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, there, you know, a, a couple historians kind of view him as one of the fathers of of public education in the in a, really? in, a, in a couple senses. You know, 16th century Geneva, public education was very religious, right? There's sure, <laughs> right, 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 right. Massive difference, but he did institute a couple of pretty dramatic reforms, like education for all. So, um, it used to be that just kind of wealthy sons uh, uh, were educated. And he said, no, education is for A, all ages, so elementary up through college. B, it's for girls as well. And C, it's for the poor. So nobody should be excluded from, because he thought, he, he, he saw education as a way to equip believers to read mm. and understand the Bible. And so that you can't exclude anyone from there. Um, and that's one of the things that has carried, you know, pass, been passed down in public education. Um, 
you know. You know- it, you know, you mentioned just the passion. Education is one of those topics that I've found nobody feels just kind of like sorta about. <laughs> like whatever somebody's belief in as it comes to education, they are very passionate about. And I've I've sat uh, and and heard very passionate arguments from. Uh, all different sides. And I'm probably the one person that's still like a couple of years away from really kind of <laughs> having to figure it out. And oh yeah, so, it's coming. Yeah. And so I, I still don't know exactly how I feel. I see the merits of all the arguments. And so I'm, I'm uh, very comfortable on the, you know, on, on the fence right now. And uh, I'll have to fall at one point. <laughs> comfortable on the picket line. That's cool. That's good, man. <laughs> Activist. No, I just I like to give I like to give voice to as many uh, opinions on that as possible. Actually, I had you on one of my other podcasts when you were local here, talking about uh, education and your role in uh, in a local charter school. And then also, you know, recently I had some uh, very pro public but anti charter uh, <laughs> folks on as well. And I was like, you know, at some point I should try to get like you know I, I know about three or four different people in in the local area. All of them have very aggressive, differing yes. views. Uh, and, and they're all some of the smartest people I know. And I, I was like, you know what, that might have to happen at some point. <laughs> it is. Yeah, you're right. It is. I mean, there's no middle ground. What, one of the, one of the worst things about this education debate is that everyone thinks they're an expert because everyone was in school. Right. And so, <laughs> right, right. And so they're like, oh, well, I remember when I was a student and these are the things that worked for me. It's so totally different, uh, on the other side of the desk, so to speak. Um, the philosophy of education, your location, uh, your role, whether as a teacher, uh, support staff, administrator. I mean, it, it's totally different than, than just being a student. It do, being a student does not qualify one to speak authoritatively on education. That's well, the other thing, too, is that the availability of immediate information is completely different now as it was to when most of us that are in kind of the parent stage were in school. So like even just education and, and what it has been, I would imagine is or at least should be completely different from what it was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Certainly the delivery method with online and whatnot, all of that. Matter. And, and so I think at the heart of it for me, if you, if you start wading into the education debate, what Christian parents should and shouldn't do, I don't think there's a normative command in the Bible except that Christian parents' primary responsibility is to teach their children about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Mm. And secondarily, whatever education they receive in terms of learning about the world that God created is ultimately the parent's responsibility, which which works against just kind of farming out the job to anybody. Even if it's a great school, a parent still has to have very involved oversight over what their child is learning, even if it's a Christian school or, or right, a homeschool yeah. environment, any, anything. Um, it ultimately falls to, to parents to be primarily responsible for their children. That being said, I don't think there's a normative command for what Christians' parents should and shouldn't do as far as the academic education of their children, which mm. for some people is going to be like, ah, you know, the heads are exploding, <laughs> right? Right, um, right. Because literally, I, I interact with people who say no Christians should have their kids in public school. And I don't, I don't like look down on that perspective in the sense that there are reasons for that. Um, I mean, there was in, I want to say 2015, maybe 16, uh, a letter from the Department of Ed and Department of Justice about uh, transgender regulations that a lot of Christians disagreed with. 
Um, there are a lot of views um, being taught in certain public schools uh, that that go against a Christian worldview. And of course, it's a public uh, institution, so you can't talk explicitly about religion or God. So I get it, right? I get it. Um, that being said, there are a lot of Christian educators in schools, and I think ultimately education is highly contextual um, hmm. because a school district in the deep South where I am, they ain't scared of saying Jesus. I mean, this is still the Bible <laughs> belt, right? Um, right? It's not that it can be explicitly taught. You're not going to have religion class necessarily in a, in a public school, but it's not like uh, people are just trying to systematically dismantle religious beliefs. Now that could be the case somewhere else. Or it could be the case that you have fantastic public schools where you are that are integrated, and, and there are a few examples, too, too few, of that where public education is, is a fantastic option academically and maybe even culturally, too. Um, and there are places where the schools are failing, and it, it wouldn't serve your child. But it's, it's so different, not only from state to state, but even district to district, I don't think as believers, we can give one definitive answer uh, for what Christian parents should do as far as education. I, I love how you laid that out there. I'm looking forward to seeing the discussion that's now inspired by <laughs> everything that you just said yeah. on the Pass the Mic Facebook group. So that'll be a, that'll be a good one that, to sit back and follow. Well, all right. So, so you you gave a presentation on education, uh, Reformation ed- education, education. Edu- hmm. <laughs> A reformation in education, and that that audio will be up soon. Um, and as soon as it is, I'll link to it on on the Rand site, and so people can access um, precisely what I went down. Let me say one more thing about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I talked about you know we, I was framing it in terms of justice. So I actually didn't talk much about what we just discussed, what Christian parents ought to do. I was talking about the the differential um, sort of investment in literally mm-hmm. white and bro- mm-hmm. black schools, uh, so the inequality there, but I was also talking about segregation, and there were two very poignant stories that that I found to to kind of illustrate um, the 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 pernicious effects of segregation. One was Ruby Bridges. A lot of people will be familiar with Ruby Bridges. There was a television special in the late 90s on it that popularized the story. But she was six years old when she integrated uh, France Elementary School in New Orleans, Louisiana, back in 1960. And she was the only black student in that entire elementary school. She had to be escorted by National Guard troops because the the mobs outside were so dangerous. She's six years old. It was immortalized in a painting by Norman Rockwell called The Problem We All Live With. And what's so powerful about the Ruby Bridges story is not just what she went through, um, because when she integrated the school, all the parents took their kids out. Mm-hmm. She was the only child in her class and only one teacher in the school would teach her um and that that was that way the entire school year so you can imagine i mean just can't even wrap your head around what that would be like for her or her family uh her family faced repercussions her father lost her job the local grocery store wouldn't sell to them even her grandparents in mississippi a state over Mm. they lost their jobs as sharecroppers Mm. so immense repercussions but what's so powerful about the ruby bridges story she's still alive 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. she's she, she she's what maybe in her sixties now, and she's still able to talk about it. So I showed a little clip of a documentary about her experience there, and I mean you could just hear a pin drop in the room. It was just so powerful to see her as a, as a grown woman talk about that experience and how as a child she was, she didn't know what was happening. Hmm. Um, and then, and then I talked about John Perkins, who's a civil rights worker, uh, racial reconciliation, founded the Christian community development association. And he's still alive too. He's in his, he's in his late eighties and still speaking nationally and internationally. He's amazing. But he sent his own children to integrate the schools in Mendenhall, Mississippi, back in, I think, the early 70s. And he reflects in his latest book on how, as a parent, he he was so ambivalent about that. And it was extremely powerful because there's one paragraph in there that basically says he doesn't require... He doesn't think any parent is required to to you know do what he did, but huh. he does say he wants Christian parents in particular to wrestle, really wrestle with where they send their kids to school because their choices affect other kids, and that was heavy. Huh. Because what we, where we often draw the line as far as Christians getting involved in public schools is putting our own kids into, you know, failing schools or, or under-resourced schools. We won't do that. And yet the point I was trying to make is uh, family like, families like the parents of Ruby Bridges and, and John Perkins, they had to do what they did. They had to put their children in harm's way so that people like me, a couple of generations later, could have the mm-hmm. opportunity really to go to any school that I want. And so my only point was not that every Christian parent is required to do something like that, but that we can't let ourselves off the hook and not wrestle with the decision about whether for the sake of justice we send our kids to uh, a, a less than uh, you know stellar school. Man. So what do I need to do, Jamar? Where do I send my kids? So just just tell me, and I'll 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 just do it. Yeah, yeah. If, if only it were that easy. Man, that sounds excellent. How how long, by the way, did you have to uh, to speak on that? Uh, it, the the total block was an hour. I spoke for about fifty minutes, and then did Q and A. And then, of course, you were also on a panel. Now, the the panel is something that I I don't was was the first one actually on Facebook Live. Was that actually streamed? I. Th- I think it was the video was up like that night. So whatever they do, it was fast. (laughs) Okay, gotcha. Well, I know for a fact that the panel was live because I did see that at the tail end coming through uh, in in the Facebook group. And I watched that for a couple minutes. I was like, man, this is a panel because Jamar is like in his like, you know, preaching <laughs> like like he's, he's he's like you know there, there's no there's no pulpit there to hammer but like i could tell that like the the air pulpit you know? <laughs> yeah. i i always say it, it, now in my presentations i don't care if it's a lecture what you know a seminar whatever the format is i say i always say i can't guarantee i'm not going to preach i just got to that point. <laughs> Right, right. Well, that seemed to be the case by the tail end of uh, the panel, but but set that up. Uh, who who was there? What was the subject? Well, the occasion was the ERLC, Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, which is sort of the public policy arm of the, the Southern Baptist Convention. 
They are doing a commemoration of the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. He was assassinated April 4th, 1968, and in 2018, it'll be the 50-year anniversary. Hmm. Interestingly, this panel took place on April 4th, so it was the exactly the 49th anniversary of of his of his assassination uh so that was it was just a it was just a very significant uh date in that sense and so this panel was part of an announcement about something called mlk 50 which is going to be a commemoration of that and it's going to be like a one-day conference type of deal and so they were announcing that they showed a brief video there was spoken word before that and then the panel came on to just kind of talk about martin luther king and his legacy and that was the setup and it what was interesting this is my first time at a tgc uh main stage event so this was in in front of the entire conference they said eight thousand people had registered and so we you know packed out this huge uh, venue to 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 host this gathering and and yeah I was up front it was it was a kind of a significant moment in that sense yeah uh, now you mentioned um, so you were on the panel who, who else did you say was there so uh, Russell Moore who's the the head of the ERLC and a uh, fellow Mississippian and uh, also Sandy Wilson who is the recently retired pastor of Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis Tennessee and of course Memphis is where Dr King was assassinated hosted by Jason Cook and and Jason remind me but Jason is from Memphis as well is that correct he pastors now in Memphis he is uh on staff as well as an editor with TGC uh uh, former football player at the University of Mississippi. So we actually ran into each other at a football game. Is that right? Yeah, it was funny. Okay, yeah. Looking at him, you can kind of tell he's uh, <laughs> he's, he's, uh, he's played yeah. some. He's a strong guy. Like I said, I, I came in at the tail end and you were fired up. So tell me what was going on. Man. So I got two questions on the panel. And, and one of them was about Dr. King's theology, the first one. And it, uh, Jason asked you know, talk about the development of Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology. And of course, what's behind that is you look at some of his seminary papers and he, he's he's not orthodox in, in some of mm-hmm. the basic beliefs about resurrection, things like that. And so he asked that question, but I didn't answer it. I answered the question that I, th- I think needed to be asked, um, and that was... So the way I put it was, um, I think we need to be aware of the theological policing of racial and ethnic minorities. And by that I mean, Mm. why do we question Dr. King's theology, but we simply assume the orthodoxy of slaveholders and segregationists? Mm. So, you know... Uh, Carl Ellis talks about A side, B side theology. A side is right. sort of more cognitive and epistemological. It's it's the stuff that gets written about in systematic theology textbooks, which can sound real good. But then he talks about B sides, which, which is the ethical and intuitive side. How do you actually live your theology? And on the B side of theology, Martin Luther King Jr. is a stellar example, right? Like whatever he may have put down on on paper as a seminary student. He talked about the beloved community, nonviolence, loving your enemy, and literally gave his life for the cause of truth, justice, uh-huh. and reconciliation. As opposed to some other theologians, mainly white males, who had 
wonderful theology on paper. Got it, got it all right. Check all the boxes, cross all the T's, dot all the I's. But thought that African Americans, by their nature, were inferior and suited to slavery. Or later, that they needed, African Americans needed to be separate from white people so as not to intermarry um, and amalgamate the races and so bring down the white race. And these are some of the founders of our seminaries. These are some of the preachers that we celebrate. These are some of the folks whose books we read. And, and, and almost never is the question raised about their theology that made them think that other people made in the image of God were inherently inferior, and they went so far as to defend it in theological writings, mm-hmm. or even if you think of the Civil War, uh, in, in, in battles, right? So I just wanted to make sure, especially given the audience, that, look, test everything by the scriptures, absolutely, but let's do that equally across racial and ethnic lines. Um, That's good. You, but like you know, given given your approach of uh, like you know, like you said, a- asking answering the question that you felt needed to be asked. I mean, given given the context of of the surroundings, maybe not necessarily TGC, but but with kind of the intention of of that particular panel. Do you think? I mean, like this wasn't let's let's take MLK to task, was it? No, not on behalf of the panelists, and I would say probably a majority of people attending the conference, but I am hyper aware, because I've experienced it, of of those who really would love to discredit Martin Luther King Jr. in any way possible, and sort of the lowest hanging fruit is is his theology, um, mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. as some of his his morality um, in, in terms of his, his marriage and, and life. But I think we, we can't underestimate the fact that white evangelicals celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. is a very recent phenomenon. Uh-huh. Um, for, for most of, I mean, for Martin Luther King's, King Jr.'s life, most theologically conservative white evangelicals thought he was a pariah. Uh, they did not celebrate what he was doing. It was the theological liberals and the atheists who 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 were in the marches, and it wasn't sort of the the conservative white evangelical crowd. And I think for decades that kind of um, animosity and resentment persisted, and it's really only very recently that that has changed. But even then, it who which Martin Luther King. Right, are you celebrating, yeah. right? It's it's like we celebrate the quotable king, but we don't celebrate the king who was in Memphis. <laughs> well, selective quotable. <laughs> Selectively quoted. That's exactly right. Selectively quotable king. But we don't celebrate the king who was in Memphis for the poor people's campaign, working for economic justice for sanitation workers. I mean, that's why he was there. He, 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 he was deeply convicted about um, materialism, consumerism, and a capitalism that was slanted toward the advantage of some while keeping others in abject poverty. Um, I mean, this is a man who who got in fights with his wife because he never wanted to own a house or get a new car. He didn't think he needed to really own anything except bare, bare necessities. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's not generally the king that gets promoted. The, the, what we generally promote is the kumbaya king, 
Mm-hmm. More the conceptual. Yeah, the conceptual. Uh, you know, uh, you know, judge folks not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, and that's so attractive because it kind of lends itself to this colorblind ideology where what it is 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 a deflection. It's an end around racism and dealing with the fact of racism as a sin and telling the truth about it and just saying, well, let's just forget all that. That's in the past. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the 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 stage that says, I don't see color and just treat everybody equally. Well, you can't get there without truth and reconciliation, which was the second question they asked. Um, they asked whether we should give up on the word reconciliation because so often it has failed. And I said, we can't give up on it because, because reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. But we have a problem with reconciliation because we want to leapfrog over truth and justice and get to the sort of, you know, arms around shoulders swaying and singing together. Uh, that won't happen if we don't tell the truth about the past and the present. And if we don't pursue justice, which isn't just making an apology, it's making things right. Hmm. Um, So there are historic imbalances and injustices that have never been righted, and how can we really expect authentic reconciliation without that? So I said, you know, the reconciliation we often practice is, is a false sense of peace. It's the absence of conflict rather than the presence of harmony. Um, so we do have a problem with reconciliation, but we can't give up on it. Uh, you know, we don't have time to, to really fully go into this. And I think maybe it, it, uh, it if not uh, in and of itself, could spawn its own uh, uh, episode than, than perhaps the subject matter broadly. But, you know, I'm reminded of a tweet that uh, King's daughter put out recently <laughs> after the, uh, the Pepsi commercial that has become so notorious. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you think about kind of this conceptual idea of like, you know, passively fighting for justice or something of that nature. And for those who have not seen it, of course, there was this, this Pepsi commercial starring, uh, uh, the Jenner girl. And she, she's, she's, oh man, like it's, it's hard to even really describe with a straight face, but, but the point is that like, basically it's like, there's this quote unquote protest. That's not really protesting anything. And it's like, you know, kind of this, you know, we're all partying in the streets and there's a police line right there. And then in probably, in, in my opinion, the most egregious uh, a moment in the entire thing is uh, uh, Jenner going up to a police officer, offering him a Pepsi. Uh, you know, this white woman walking up to the, p- the police officer, offering him a Pepsi as this Muslim girl takes the picture, uh, which in and of itself is mirroring. And, and I, I, it has to be intentional. It's mirroring and mimicking the... Uh, uh, now famous photo from Baton Rouge, uh, the Baton Rouge protests. And, and it's just, it's, it's the most blatantly tone deaf commercial that I've seen in a long time. It's, it, I, I can't say it's the most tone deaf commercial of all time, because like I said, we could probably do an entire episode in terms of Definitely uh, commercials and, and, you know, the message there. But, you know, one of the things that came out of that whole debacle was Pepsi, kind of defining what it was they were trying to accomplish with that, with that commercial was they were trying to speak to a generation who is constantly looking to jump on to kind of this, this 
you know, to be involved. And to some extent, I actually think they kind of did that because I think that there is almost this kind of like conceptual idea of standing for justice that looks kind of like that Pepsi commercial. And I think in the same way, when we think about King, you know, or when kind of the, I guess the broad, broader kind of white mindset thinks about King, it's more of in a very passive, not actually fighting and with a big F, you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's the way that we've kind of, we've put King in that Pepsi commercial essentially. Mm. And so I think that, you know, you talk about kind of the way that this is only just a new idea that, uh, especially white Americans celebrate King it's in that kind of framework. And it's not in, as you say, the, the historical, uh, MLK. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're not into costly conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's good. Yeah. You know, we, we're into sort of um, a, a performative righteousness, if I could say it that way, hmm. which, which, which is a posture of, you know, I'm about justice, I'm about reconciliation. It very rarely risks anything other than 140 characters or a retweet, <laughs> right? Um, and, and I, I don't know, but you can risk a lot in 140 characters. Uh, depending on your position, yes, that's definitely true. That's so, true. definitely so. Um, but but I know what you're saying. I know what you're not, saying. It's yeah. not you know it, you know have you have you suffered to the sake of shedding blood, right? That's right. It, yeah. It's not quite to that aspect. So yeah, you know, to Pepsi's credit, they pulled it down. They tried to explain it. They didn't hide from it, but it was extremely tone deaf and, and by the way that jenner kylie jenner we don't mean to be pejorative but um yeah it was yeah we could do a whole episode on that uh but it, it it was about you know i think the backlash was about it made light of the sacrifice and the suffering that go along with really standing up for justice i mean we're talking about king mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. was shot and killed mm-hmm. because of it and many others who who weren't nearly as famous, women and men who who were killed, lost jobs, suffered immensely uh, for the sake of justice, and and then to trivialize it by saying, well, we can diffuse all of this conflict with a with a with a sugary drink. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 it, it was Bernice King, his daughter, who sent out a tweet. If only Daddy would have known. That's she just needed yeah. Pepsi, you know. That's like, duh, wow. There's been so many like that, and uh, like I said, the uh, I, I think who knows at some point maybe we really should do uh, an unpacking of marketing campaigns mm-hmm. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that uh, have have been. Uh, I mean, some some. I don't know. There's just a, I don't even know what we would call that episode per se, but, um, you know, the, 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 the commodification of protest, something like that, something Um, like that. But let me say this real quick before I forget, I I almost never want to talk about Martin Luther King Jr. anymore because I know Dr. Micah Edmondson. (laughs) (laughs) He is a King scholar. He got his PhD from Calvin Seminary, and and his his dissertation was on King's theology of suffering. And he just published his first book. And I said this in the TGC panel. I said, uh, without a hint of hyperbole, that every Christian college and seminary needs to order this book. It's called The Power of Unearned Suffering, subtitle, the roots and implication of Martin Luther King Jr.'s theodicy, hmm. and so it's talking about King's theology of suffering and how 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 he how he um, 
read the Bible and and interpreted events and and understood suffering in light of Scripture. And it's a fantastic book. It's a very scholarly book. It's an academic book. It's not not a popular level thing. That's why I say Christian seminary, seminaries and, and, and colleges. But for anybody who's interested, it's still readable, um, yeah. and you can get a lot from it. But but yeah, Dr. Micah Edmondson, he's 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 a King scholar. We've we've had a couple of shows with him on, and so right. if you just go to uh, the website and type in Micah Edmondson, he's written for us, and those those podcasts will come up. So don't listen to me. Listen to him. <laughs> He's great, and get his book or get your institution to purchase his book. That's good. That's good. Well, man, uh, thanks so much for uh, for sharing some of your experiences at TGC this year. Um, you know, I know that uh, uh, many were uh, happy to, to see you there and 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 speaking, and and gr- glad that you were there speaking in a in a number of roles, uh, both both on stage and off. So um, yeah, and, and and I just you know thank the folks at TGC. Uh, you know, they actually. Um, they're really supportive of Rand historically. Have good friends there, and and so I'm I'm very appreciative. Uh, I hope I, didn't, I hope I didn't get them into too much trouble, but uh, yeah, we're 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 appreciative, and and they're not the only conference. We have a lot of supporters who who have just given Rand a chance because we ain't got no money, we ain't got no pull, you know. These folks just out of the kindness of their hearts have been gracious to us, so we appreciate that. Well, all right. Well, hey, uh, let's keep the conversation going. If you have not done so already, head over to Facebook.com. Uh, I believe slash pass the mic, but that's probably not right. Look for the pass the mic Facebook group and uh, join us there. Uh, great way to keep some of these conversations going. Uh, when the uh, when the episodes go out, it's a great, great time to uh, sit back and enjoy the comments. You know, I... I am not particularly as, uh, engaged on the Facebook group. I don't, you know, uh, typing is not my medium of communication. I'm, I'm dyslexic. So, uh, I don't post all that much. I do occasionally comment. Uh, we got a shout out from a listener, uh, who listened to, um, last episode and she, she mentioned, uh, re- I won't read her comment or anything, but she did mention LaCroix, uh, <laughs> uh, carbonated water and she was getting a hard time in the group. People were hating on LaCroix. And I was like, I was sitting there drinking a LaCroix right then. So I took a selfie and put it. <laughs> I was like, like, come on now. I got five cases of this. Uh, it's, My wife got me into LaCroix. I, I oh! hesitate to even say that <laughs> on a recorded show, but no, I man, don't look, hate it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, uh, like, it's terrible. I'm not going to lie. It does, it does taste terrible. But like once you get through like past the terrible taste and it just becomes the norm, it's much healthier. They than- put some something else in it it ain't just carbonated water what i know because if you let it sit it's it tastes like salt water it does but it's also like addictive it's habit forming um mm, i don't know what's true. in it and i'd love to hear tyler's perspective this may be a <laughs> debate on past the mic but <laughs> that's good. Yeah. it'll it'll precede the woke episode <laughs> <laughs> and i don't know how you do this tyler i mean uh bo this is how you are an award how did you get me to talk for 50 plus minutes i don't know how uh, <laughs> no, man. Uh, it's it's pretty pretty easy. Whenever it's going to be you and me, I'm like, oh, sweet. I just get to sit back, listen to uh, Jamar unpack everything. It's awesome. Hot air. That's great. Yeah. Not at all. But Not at all. Yeah. Appreciate it, man. Uh, keep up with Jamar Tisby. You can follow him on Twitter at Jamar Tisby. If you want to, you can follow me at the real Bo York. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to get it's a mixed bag with me. So <laughs> at your own risk. <laughs> no, no. I mean like you go for it. You'll never, you'll rarely see anything too controversial for me. Cause it's mostly like, you know, here's my dog, but uh, <laughs> you can also follow uh, Tyler Burns at Burns 23. You can follow him at your own risk. 
Uh, and uh, be sure to join us next week on the next Pass the Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com.